You're listening to Meritocracy. Hi, I'm Carrie Lee Merritt. Welcome to another episode of Meritocracy. On this season, we're discussing the 2020 election, the possibilities and pitfalls of a post-Trump America. Today, I'm so happy to have join me Dr. Lisa D. Cook. Lisa Cook is a professor of economics and international relations at Michigan State University. She was the first Marshall Scholar from Spelman College and received a second BA in philosophy, politics, and economics from Oxford University. She earned a PhD in economics from the University of California, Berkeley, with fields in macroeconomics and international economics. Prior to this appointment, she was on the faculty of Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government, Deputy Director for Africa Research at the Center for International Development at Harvard University, and a National Fellow at Stanford University. Among her current research interests are economic growth and development, innovation, financial institutions and markets, and economic history. Dr. Cook is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and is the author of a number of published articles, book chapters, and working papers. She is on the board of editors of the Journal of Economic Literature, and her research has appeared in such journals as the American Economic Review and the Journal of Economic Growth. This research has been funded by the National Science Foundation, the National Bureau for Economic Research, the Smithsonian Institution, Harvard Business School, and the Economic History Association, among others. She is currently director of the American Economic Association Summer Program and was president of the National Economic Association from 2015 to 2016. In 2019, she was awarded the Impactful Mentor Award for mentoring graduate students by the American Economic Association Mentoring Pipeline Program. During the 2011 to 2012 academic year, she was on leave at the White House Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama and has had visiting appointments at the National Bureau of Economic Research, the University of Michigan, and the Federal Reserve Banks of New York, Chicago, Minneapolis, and Philadelphia. She serves on the advisory board of the Lemuelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation of the Smithsonian Institution and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She is a guest columnist for the Detroit Free Press and a regular contributor to MSNBC. She speaks English, French, Russian, Spanish, and Wolof. We're so happy to have Dr. Lisa D. Cook. Dr. Cook, thank you so much for being with us here today. The pleasure's all mine. Thank you for having me. So before we really get into the political talk, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about you and your background. Now, I know you went to Spelman for your undergraduate degree, and I think that you're from the Atlanta area. I think that you've got an amazing family of origin from a few tweets that I've seen of yours. Apparently, your uncle is the famous Dr. Samuel Du Bois Cook. Uh, who was apparently also classmates with Martin Luther King Jr. So this must have made a huge impact on you and probably really brought you into your line of work. So if you could just tell us a little bit about your background. I am grateful to have grown up in Milledgeville, Georgia. Uh, my parents moved from Washington, D.C. It was a town of 13,000 when we grew up there. And I grew up on the campus of Georgia College and State University used to be Georgia College when I was there. My mom was the first African-American professor there. It was, is the alma mater of uh, Flannery O'Connor and uh, was a women's college of Georgia when she was there. The largest employer in Milledgeville was actually Central State Hospital. Uh, used to serve about 20,000 patients or so. And uh, it is a mental institution, one of the oldest in the country. And the reason I mentioned this is because I think the, my origins speak to this period of desegregation of the schools. So we were uh, desegregating the schools at each juncture and everything else, uh, the swimming pool on campus, for example. And my parents were doing the same in their, uh, their employment uh, do at their at their jobs at Central State. My dad was a chaplain there, came from uh, Howard University, uh, had just finished in Divinity School, and my mom 
from Friedman's Hospital as an intern, and she was a professor at the uh, at the college. So they were both first the uh, first professionals at uh, their respective institutions. The central state, I mentioned central state for this reason. When there are so many people who are at a mental institution, every, everybody becomes a, a, an armchair psychiatrist, right? Mm -hmm. And I say that people from Milledgeville have a cradar. They have a radar that detects crazy or detects mental illness. And they do it in both, a, a, I would say, a healthy and unhealthy way. They put you on a spectrum. Everybody is on the spectrum. So the question is, how, how, where are you on it? And, and, and in that sense, it's healthy because everybody, that means that everybody's on it and you're tolerant of many people. But the other thing about growing up on a college campus in the middle of the Bible Belt in the middle of rural Georgia is that we, we got to ask questions that a lot of our counterparts in other parts of Georgia did not get to ask. There was a tolerance for curiosity, uh, a tolerance for, and not to say that wasn't true in any other place, but I, I mean outside of Atlanta. We were able to ask questions as if there were no wrong questions and answers that could contain nuance. I remember in our very small paper, the Union Recorder, that uh, a philosophy professor started this community conversation about the existence of God. And it was just wild. Yeah, of course, he was arguing that there was no God. And uh, this is in the middle of the Bible Belt. I mean, it was just the greatest, on the one hand, entertainment and greatest thing to show what kind of liberal bastion this was in the city that was the capital of Georgia during the Confederacy. So let's just be clear, where there was a lynching in 1921, you know, it was a, it was a city of, uh, or town, definitely not a city, of contrasts. And I thought that was uh, a great place to grow up. Most of the people at Georgia College had PhDs from Midwestern universities, hence our, our accent. We probably don't sound like many people who are originally from Milledgeville or from central Georgia. And my mother was the advisor to black students, for example, and that meant black students anywhere. So that meant uh, in the US or uh, abroad. So that meant African and uh, Indian, East Indian uh, students uh, who were considered black at the time. So we had a lot of people coming through our, our house, coming to Sunday dinners. So it was a fantastic, in that sense, a fantastic place to uh, grow up. With respect to family origin, there were two of my family members who were in the class of 48 with Martin Luther King. One of them was uh, Samuel Du Bois Cook, and they'd met. My, our families had met before. Uh, they went to Morehouse. They showed up at Morehouse together. Our grandfathers started uh, Morehouse at the same time. My grandfather uh, started Morehouse but had to go home when uh, his father passed away. And, you know, if there was no one there stopping mobs, uh, the land would be taken, uh, something might happen to the family. So he had to leave Morehouse. So uh, Daddy King and my grandfather uh, knew each other and what I understand from other people, not from the family, uh, the Atlanta preachers really admired uh, uh, Daddy King, who was sort of great preacher orator of his time, and people outside of Atlanta really admired uh, my grandfather, uh, Marcus uh, Emanuel Cook, who had about five churches. This was this was typical for a lot of uh, rural preachers. Uh, he had a lot of uh, small churches in a lot of small towns. So we've known each other for a long time. The other person who was in, uh, in the class of 48 at Morehouse was Floyd McKissick Sr. There's so many things that he did. He desegregated the law school at the University of North Carolina, uh, helped to organize the Freedom Rides. Uh, he was involved in so many different facets of the uh, civil rights movement. He was a speaker at the March on Washington. He was uh, one of the founders of CORE with uh, James Farmer. Mm -hmm. And 
set up Soul City, North Carolina. So I think one of the things that was really um, left a really big impression on me with respect to the study of economics, and this is why you asked the question, I guess, is that we visited Soul City every summer. So we saw it growing from just a dirt, dirt plane to one trailer to several trailers to a building where IBM was going to be housed and uh, a, I think it was a water sewage treatment plant, some sort of utility like that. And I came back every summer with something to talk about to my colleagues. You know, we always did the show and tell when we came back. My cousin is building a city. And I had questions about how you would organize a city. And one of the things that you had to do was to organize an economy. And I think that's why I've been drawn to macroeconomics and have thought about the racial wealth gap for a long time. In the seventh grade, I won a prize in the social science fair based on black unemployment. And I am sure if this were in the seventh grade, it's like, where did I get that from? Like my parents weren't unemployed. They were constantly employed. In fact, they were overemployed. And I think it was because I was thinking about those issues early, early on. So I think those, those are, are some of the influences in the family and they were carrying out the civil rights movement in, in similar ways, but very different ways. Cousin Floyd was, uh, was marching and he was, he was marching, he was suing, he was an attorney, uh, he was a businessman. He was talking to uh, banks in New York to try to get African-Americans opportunities and open doors for them. Uh, before Wall Street started doing so, so before the modern era, before the Wall Street project and so on. On the other hand, at the same time he was doing that, uh, Uncle Sam was integrating Duke University. He's the first black faculty member there. I just remember the similar experiences that my mom had, first black professor on our campus that he had. And I think that they had both a, a mission of learning their disciplines very well, learning political theory very well, and learning uh, biology and you know, nursing is what women had to be on the faculty of then. Uh, women were not allowed to be in some disciplines uh, on campus, you know, and, and this is, there's a long history of that, long literature on that. And I was certainly a beneficiary of women not being allowed in some of those professions on, on campus. And most of my high school teachers, uh, my AP teachers, my advanced teachers should have been uh, college professors, but I certainly benefited from them being there in, in high school. So from my family and from Milledgeville, people were approaching the civil rights movement in very different ways, but they converged. You really had to be knowledgeable and you had to be nonviolent. They were promoting uh, both. And my sisters and I had to uh, practice it, whether we uh, sometimes wanted to or not. You alluded to you had a great education and you know all these other women that helped you. But I want to point out what an amazing trailblazer you are in your own right, because I think that people outside of the field of economics, um, you know, it's, it's bad enough in history being a, a white male dominated field. Even people in academia don't really realize how bad it is in economics, how still dominated by, you know, a, a small cadre of white men who decide everything, especially research topics. You and the amazing women at Sadie Collective and, mm -hmm. and many, many women in economics are, are coming together now and really, really fighting kind of the patriarchy. And I wanted you to just speak a little bit about that. I know you've written many op-eds and you're getting the word out about how the field of economics needs to change. That has been just a, both a spontaneous set of events, but just like all other spontaneous events, as you know, as a historian, they had some precedent. So I was president of the National Economic Association uh, several years ago, and this came about in the 1960s. It created the American 
Economic Association summer program that I uh, directed uh, to encourage underrepresented minorities to do PhDs in, in economics. And I think that one of the things that, that I noticed was that we really were relegated, African-Americans largely were relegated to these, uh, to certain disciplines within economics, to uh, certain journals in economics. And again, growing up in a place where there was always this environment of uh, curiosity and questioning, and you wanna get to the right answer because you wanna make lives better for people. And this was what the civil rights movement promised. And, and that's for everybody, make lives better for everybody. I was really struck to notice that we, you know, we just weren't in some spaces. So luckily I was asked to be uh, the director of the AEA uh, summer program and uh, the summer program moved to MSU, started getting more involved in these issues. And then I saw it on the back end. What were our students being told? Why were they dropping out? Why were their numbers declining uh, among undergraduates? Well, I figured it out. And it's not a mystery. It's been written about. It's been written about for STEM fields as well. People were approaching these students as if they had some deficit, as if there was something inherently wrong with either being a, a Black or Hispanic economist or with the study of African Americans or Hispanic Americans. And it didn't seem right to me. Why wouldn't we apply the same great tools, amazing tools that we had to problems that they faced without us saying that that's a marginalized population, so it's not of general interest. And this really hit home after a long trajectory when I was in Russia. And it's the beginning of the story of my own paper that was chronicled in Planet Money and in other places. They were asking me why innovation couldn't get started in Russia. And, you know, I was like, I, I have no idea. That's not what I'm working on. I'm working on banks. But I thought about it for a long time. And it turned out that the question would be answered with an historical experiment using African-American inventors. And the story of the paper is that I think initially people did not believe, my fellow economists did not believe that something that could answer a question for African-Americans could also be relevant and, and for the U.S. could also be relevant for the U.S. and for uh, emerging markets or industrialized countries. And it turns out when I give this talk, uh, and I don't even mention Russia yet, I don't tell them the origin of the idea, uh, they're some of the ones who are most interested. And uh, mm -hmm. people from China, economists from China, from uh, Ukraine, from other places where the rule of law was not always protected. I would say that that fueled my interest. Now, in terms of practical steps, I was invited to be on the Committee on uh, Diversity, Equity, and Professional Conduct. And we carried out the first climate study ever uh, in economics, and we learned a lot. We learned that sexual harassment was what much more widespread than anyone thought. And I think that that was, uh, that was really disheartening, it was disappointing, but it was also a call to action. We really needed to have a code of conduct. We really needed to have an ombudsperson. We really needed to take uh, people to task for their bad behavior. We needed to make sure that it didn't spread from institution to institution. We made that case. Uh, for women first, and then we made that case for uh, African-Americans and African-American women. I wrote the op-ed with Anna Gifty. We talked about how Black women in particular saw declining numbers, and I didn't know at the time uh, that I was the first woman uh, to head the AEA summer program, the first Black woman to head the AEA summer program. And that seemed strange to me because 
typically for African-Americans in STEM, women dominate the STEM fields at the undergraduate level. So why mm -hmm. was economics so different? And what we saw between 1995 and the mid 2010s is that undergraduate women, black women, had increased by 1% among uh, econ majors and African-American men had increased by 44%. Something was wrong. They were being deterred for some reason. So we're, we're still trying to get to the bottom of it. So I personally started recruiting more black women to come to the AEA summer program. Often programs like this are, are fueled by word of mouth. They uh, circulate by word of mouth. So I just tried to get the word out. One of the things that I did was uh, to use social media so that we started reaching many more people. I started recruiting at women's colleges to make sure that uh, we got women, uh, minority women of all sorts. Some of the graduates of the AEA summer program decided to start a grassroots movement called uh, the Sadie Collective, founded by Anna Gifty and Fanta Traore. They just wanted to get information out. They were doing sort of what I was doing, but from the grassroots much younger. A lot of this is what I was trying to do through, uh, through social media was just to let them know about what economists do, because for the most part, they hadn't been interacting with economists, what kinds of jobs they could have. For recruiting some students, it was really hard to, to sell a PhD to uh, an undergraduate and to their family. I you know, wound up talking to people's families about allowing them to attend the AEA summer program because they were counting on them getting an MBA or getting a job immediately. So this isn't something that is, uh, is very common in the underrepresented minority communities. So I, um, I was putting together a little bit here, a little bit there, and it seemed as though it, it spawned a lot of interest in getting more, more uh, African-Americans, more African-American women into the, the field. And I'm glad they've taken it up from their, uh, from their perspective. And I think they've highlighted many more issues than uh, we would have as older people. I have been working with a number of graduate students, attended the Diversity Summit uh, in Economics at Berkeley in 2017, I believe it was. And, you know, I was just impressed at the energy. This is organized by graduate students, students of color and the um, uh, the Berkeley Women in Economics, and there was so much energy. And from that, they started questioning things like, you know, why do we have interviews in hotel rooms? Why do we have job interviews in hotel rooms? And, you know, I was like, oh boy, that's a good question. Have no idea why. Why did I even accept that? Like, you know, they're asking questions and I called them the Parkland kids because the Parkland kids were asking, why do you guys even put up? with gun violence like this, like, like, what is this? What kind of society is this? And they were asking the same kind of, of question. And, you know, with, with Alice Wu's paper, and then these kinds of questions, and then the graduate student letter, there's just been a lot of momentum. So that's what I meant by spontaneity. But the groundwork had been laid before by the NEA and by CSHWEP, by the other committees that had been focused on on diversity, but I think there's just a lot more uh, momentum and the students are used to a different kind of activism. And I think that they're asking a lot of good questions. Why are there uh, so few black professors uh, in academia, in, in economics and academia? Why are there so few uh, African-Americans at the Federal Reserve, uh, so few uh, Latinas at the Federal Reserve? So I think they're raising a lot of uh, a lot of good questions, primarily related to black women, but they raise by extension a lot of other questions. So I'm glad that the data gathering is happening, for example, that there's a grassroots effort on many campuses to start uh, women in economics or women in minorities in economics. That's what it's called at Michigan State, whammy. And I think that these are, are all good because this is what was happening in the 1960s 
when the National Economic Association came about and when uh, CSWEP came about. So I guess this is uh, that generation and I just want to harness all of the energy to do some good and to do some good that stays and that is institutionalized. And we're doing some of the simple things. I was elected to this executive committee. I think I was the second uh, to serve. I'm the second African-American to serve on the executive committee of the AEA. And we're raising some questions that should have been raised long ago. We changed the name of the distinguished lecture from uh, that of uh, Richard Eli, who turned out to be you know, the founding father of the AEA and also a uh, eugenicist and misogynist. And that's not a way to welcome people to the economics profession. We're having discussions about mental health. And I think that uh, for too long, we have not had discussions about mental health. So I'm hoping that we can take some concrete steps to make this a more welcoming place uh, not just for women, not just for uh, underrepresented minorities, but for everybody, because everybody has a question. And that's the, that's the essence of my, uh, the story of my paper, that we do things that will diminish the good ideas. And often, let's say in the crisis we have now, the economic and health crisis that we have now, we need the best mind. And we need all kinds of uh, imagination and creativity and skills to be able to answer these questions. And if we're turning people away, that doesn't make any sense. I think the opportunity cost is now too great. We have too many urgent matters that need to be taken care of, not just in the economics profession, not just in the economics field, but more broadly. One thing that I would like to do is to, for these young people that I'm talking about, making sure that they're not always experiencing a financial crisis every 10 years. I think it's unconscionable that we have allowed this to, to happen. So I'm always working to make sure that the next financial crisis does not happen. The importance for women and particularly for black women to be in economics is partially political because as anyone who knows anything about you know, you have worked as a White House aide to President Obama. Um, you have done a lot politically to help shape uh, our country's economics. So given that we're going into the election season and given your insider knowledge about how politics works, what message do you think any anti-fascist right now should be really concentrating on in these last few weeks? I think there are two messages that we should be concentrating on. One is that this was preventable. What we have, this crisis that we have on our hands right now was preventable. The president knew so much more than we knew that he knew in February and late January. It is unconscionable that the playbook that the Obama administration left was tossed out and that that unit was closed within the White House. It had gone to such a level, it was at the level of the White House that it was formulated. It is, it is a scandal that the CDC that was founded to fight hookworm in the South, fight malaria that was still prevalent in the South, that has been the icon of health and public health in the world that helped to fight Ebola along with many other infectious diseases, that that public institution is being degraded in that way is an outrage. We have to attack this virus first. We wouldn't be talking about an economic crisis if this virus had been contained, if it had been addressed at the time we had the information and in a nationally coordinated way. That's the first thing that I think is really important for uh, Democrats to emphasize. The second thing is, and this comes from my having lived in Russia and written my dissertation there, having answered many questions related to my research, related to the rule of law, related to Russia, having advised the government of Rwanda in its first post-genocide IMF program on the ground, on the ground, and having seen the aftermath of atrocities that humans can commit, 
I've seen the antecedents of what might be happening. And we see every day this march to something that could turn out like that genocide or that could turn out like Russia has in a number of respects where opposition leaders are poisoned regularly. You know, if it's Tuesday, there's an opposition leader or journalist who's poisoned. That's ridiculous. I don't want that in this country. I don't want that in this country. I found it so hard to concentrate in Russia because I had to focus on conspiracy theory all the time because eventually there, the conspiracy theory would come true. And I wasn't trained in conspiracy theory. I was trained in macroeconomics. And the way the rule of law was undermined was just unsettling. And I see that happening here. I got back to this country and literally every time I landed, I kissed the ground. So I kissed the ground at Hartsfield Jackson. I kissed the ground at SFO, typically where I was landing. You know, I'm not sure I ever kissed the ground at JFK, but I tried. I tried. I tried. The way you, you were always on edge and you weren't certain about what you knew. You weren't certain that that bombing of an apartment building was actually a bombing by a, a Chechen rebel, but maybe it was a bombing by Putin to take away concentration on what was happening in Chechnya. We have seen this before, and that's why my European friends told me before Trump was elected not to make fun of what was happening, to take very seriously what was happening, because they've had recent skirmishes with fascism. They know the impact of fascism, and this guy is uh, definitely a, a fascist and embraces that and will sow divisions in this country that we can, uh, that will take a long time to mend. And if the Rwandan uh, episode is any instruction, uh, it could take generations. It could absolutely take, or even if the European uh, project provides us any insight, it could take decades, again, generations. I did my junior year abroad in Alsace. You know, they were fighting each other. The Germans and French were fighting each other, seemed like every 10 years or so, every 10 or 20 years. And one of the things that I learned uh, when I was growing up in the civil rights movement was nonviolent tactics and de-escalation. So much so that my friends used to call me the pontiff because if there were a fight about to happen, you know, I jump in, look, what do you want? What do you want? Let's, 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 let's be rational about this. We, nobody has to fight. I did that often enough that it became a, a political skill. How do you get the best deal for, for everybody? And how do you make sure that violence isn't a part of it? So I'm just wishing that we restore these democratic institutions that help us with de-escalation. We don't have to depend on factions when we have these institutions that are protected. So those are the two things that I would like really dealt with, the virus and therefore the economy, and uh, then the restoration of democratic institutions. They really need shoring up. Uh, Trump has really exposed how fragile they, they were. And, uh, and now that we know about how fragile they were, let's, uh, let's shore them up and let's make sure that they're still standing. So continuing along that line of thought, given your background, not only in Russia, but also as one of the world's preeminent scholars on lynching in America, thinking about this white backlash that's almost, you know, it's surely going to happen once Trump is gone. What kind of wisdom do you think you can offer people as to how to kind of combat this white backlash, this white rage that will come across? I would have to channel my uncle's and my cousin's classmate in this moment. One thing that I've done since John Lewis passed is to take a look at the photos. He was always inviting me to his office to see, ones from the civil rights movement. What I always saw were people from all over the country, people from all faiths, white people, 
Black people, Indians, uh, East Indians, people who otherwise didn't have, they thought, much in common, but they had humanity. They saw a common future. And I think we have to understand how common our futures are. The virus does not ask if you are white or black or of Asian descent. It doesn't ask that. If we don't get the virus under control, if we don't think about what our chief priorities are and how we are interconnected, we're never gonna solve anything. So we definitely need to have a person in the White House who is thinking about bringing people together. This man, the president, has sown so many divisions and so many of them are artificial. So he's, he's just taken on the project that Fox News and uh, Clear Vision have uh, taken on. And I think it is, it is outrageous that we think of ourselves as so incredibly uh, different. Some of my friends uh, laugh at the fact that I will put on, uh, put on famous comedians like uh, Jeff Foxworthy from, uh, from Georgia and, and other such comedians who talk about rural life. And, you know, one time I saw, you know, Larry the Cable Guy and I took out one of his uh, DVDs. He had a Confederate flag at the end of the DVD. I, I sent it back to Netflix or wherever I got it from. Because I think one thing that he doesn't realize is that he's from Nebraska. Most of his audience is rural and Southern. We have so much in common. It's not a black experience or a white experience. And I think that's what some of the NASCAR folks didn't get, that our experiences are very similar. Mm -hmm. And the, the whole issue related to the flag, uh, the Confederate flag, I think has to be put into context. And these divisions have to be uh, shown for what they are, and that's superficial. What do we all want? We all want to see subsequent generations do better than we're doing. We all want a strong economy. We all want democratic institutions because that's what's made us strong in the past. My view is always to make sure that people understand, uh, and this is my negotiation tactic learned from uh, many years of getting beaten up, uh, we were beaten up all the time uh, practicing nonviolence because people knew that they could take advantage of us until we learned how to deal with them with our mouths and, and some other uh, special tactics, but certainly with our mouths. And I just want these to de-escalate first. One thing that I noticed about, for example, the riots in South Carolina uh, during the backlash from Reconstruction the entire economy was plunged into slower activity. If we're looking at the Tulsa massacre, the records that I look at are insurance records of, uh, there, there are lots from uh, black ones, but they often weren't paid or they um, often weren't insured. But a number of the, black, the records, insurance records that I look at have to do with white businesses. This is true for many, uh, many uprisings, many riots. We have a, a common interest, if we're looking just at my research, to having more innovation, to having um, economic activity, and to having higher standards of living. And I know that that sounds like a real capitalist, but I, I would say that if that's what people understand, I just wanna find some common ground. Before, it might be religion. And I think religion still has a role to play, especially in uh, rural areas and in the South. I'm, I'm still religious and I will appeal always to, just as my dad did, that's where a lot of the civil rights movement in my hometown came from, was interfaith groups making the argument based on 
uh, on religion. And these religions were, were vast uh, from Baha'i to, um, to Muslim, to uh, Jewish, to Catholic, uh, which was you know, not always welcomed in the South. Anyway, I think that um, I would want to find our common humanity rather than the lowest common denominator. That comes from my work in the civil rights movement and it also comes from my time in Rwanda because I've seen the aftermath of that where we cannot find anything that tells us we all have a common destiny. Now, what politically, what kind of policy do you see driving this? Do you think that we were in need of a real third reconstruction where we're passing constitutional amendments? How do you best see this playing out from a policy uh, level perspective? So that's a good question. You're gonna to have to ask the political scientist in my family that. I, 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 I don't quite know, um, but I, I would suspect that I don't quite know about uh, the route of constitutional uh, amendments, but I do know that, let's say with respect to inspectors general, we really need to have stronger protections of whistleblowers and of inspectors general. They cannot be fired uh, willy-nilly. We need to make, <clears throat> excuse me, make sure that we understand the business dealings of uh, political candidates, uh, not just the president, but everybody else. Every day there seems to be a new law that is, or, or uh, practice, long-standing practice, that is undermined. I never would have thought to record anything in the Situation Room. In fact, I thought that recording devices were detected. I didn't know that that was coming from just respect for secrecy. And people in the Trump administration were recording from day one. And I think that's outrageous. I think that in every, every dimension of political life, we need to think about what was uh, written and what was uh, followed because of custom and what we actually need to be put in writing and have it with, with sanctions and with penalties. It seems like the entire presidency was based on a handshake. And the reason I could predict, and I did write a, a piece that wound up being published in The Hill in 2016, based on my research, saying that we need to be prepared for what's about to happen. And you're asking me this question now. We, we circulated the op-ed to the major outlets and everyone was saying that I'm too alarmist. And every single thing I predicted in there has happened. And I really think that we need to take that seriously now. You know, I guess people, many people were saying, oh, he can't be that bad, let's give him a chance. You know, having seen this, having lived in, in Russia, this is, this is, some things don't even translate into English or the American legal system. And I can see that. You know, I, I see some trolls who uh, obviously speak Russian because they've written English like they write Russian. Mm -hmm. So, I'm, you know, it's like I, I, I didn't learn Russian for that purpose, but I'm putting it to good use now. Mm -hmm. So I hope that the uh, Biden administration, if it gets an opportunity to govern, make sure that it is tapping into the uh, the best minds, and, and when I say also the best minds, in the most uh, inclusive way, because what, what I'm suggesting and what your question earlier suggested was that we're not always tapping into the broadest group of the best minds, the best definition of the best minds, uh, which is why we have uh, too few uh, women, too few African-Americans, too few black women, and places where decisions are being made, if we're quoting Hamilton uh, from the room where it happened. So I, I think that's what, we've, uh, that's what we've got to do. We have to do a sweeping review of everything where there is discretion and make sure that the next president, uh, it, it doesn't have to depend on who the next president is, 
that our democracy is maintained by the institutions and not by individuals, that we don't have to rely on personality and that person's willingness to, to do good and put the state first, to put the constitution, uh, the country first, we can make it so. And I, I just uh, hope and pray that that happens. So much, uh, just a massive cleanup that obviously needs to happen and, and so much more regulation that we need to bring on, obviously. I know we're getting near the end of the interview. I thank you so much for your time. People have just gotten a really wonderful education for essentially for free. I know you support the Sadie Collective and I'll definitely link to them on this program and throughout this interview. But are there other charities or any causes that you particularly believe in or that you support and you would like to encourage other people to support with either time or money? Black Girls Code, it might be cheesy, but I, uh, I like it when uh, people are doing what I would have done in Girl Scouts, um, but getting the skills that would be broadly uh, applied in society. Uh, Fair Fight Action, uh, the group that Stacey Abrams has created to protect the vote, uh, and there are a number of different charities that exist, uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund that exists to help uh, protect the vote. And I would want people to sign up as a former deputy registrar in, uh, in Fulton County. I would want people to make sure that they made a plan to go vote. There's a lot of misinformation that is uh, happening right now. Uh, I will sleep in the county clerk's office if I don't get my, I haven't gotten my ballot. I uh, requested my ballot for two races in Michigan in March and in August, and I haven't received either one. So that tells you that, and we just passed this law in 2018 um, for no excuse absentee voting. Uh, we, we need to make sure, uh, double check everything and make sure that other people who typically wouldn't have a ride to the polls or wouldn't have uh, help pulling things out have uh, that kind of help. The other charity that I've given to recently is um, I've, I've given to bail funds and to uh, protesters who've been thrown in jail for no reason. And uh, this is, in, in, in that sense, I'm just uh, following uh, following family uh, tradition and the lawyers who were in my family who were getting people out of jail left and right. So I, I think that those would be the ones that I would, uh, that I would support and support now. I would also support the businesses, black businesses and Hispanic businesses have been disproportionately affected by uh, COVID-19 just because of where they are the businesses that they're typically in. Uh, so I've been supporting black bookstores, Marcus Books, the oldest uh, black bookstore in the country. There are a number in Atlanta uh, and in uh, Detroit, all over the country. So I've uh, been supporting those as, as well. So, and I, I always look for recommendations. So if you have any, uh, I am uh, looking forward to supporting uh, those as well. Now, one last question to end on. Sure. I know you mentioned your faith. Um, what what else grounds you and brings you peace and hope in a moment right now that can that can be so wrought with hopelessness? Seventy five percent of that is uh, religion and spirituality, um, meditation that grounds me. It gives me hope to get through the day or get through the week. But the other thing that, that grounds me and gives me hope is that America has come through this before. That my cousin didn't always know that he was going to come back alive. My uncle didn't know that he was going to survive. I wasn't, wasn't sure that he was going to survive just integrating Duke University, which was harder than integrating Harvard, being the first black professor at Harvard. To be the first black professor at a major Southern university, they didn't know that they were going to live from this. We faced death threats because of our civil rights work in Milledgeville. We're still here and we're still telling the story and we're still not just keeping their dreams alive, 
I wasn't even allowed to, to leverage, uh, to mention uh, my uncle and my cousins, uh, whatever they were doing, because the onus was put on me. Every generation has got to defend these rights and these protections that have been hard fought. They weren't a fait accompli. So many things could have gone off the rails. So there's so many times when people could have been attacked. We could have uh, not made it back from New Orleans where my uncle was president of Dillard University because of a bad stop in Mississippi. There are so many things that could have happened to, to us along the way, but this country has survived those challenges. And that's why I think that the, the notion that there is a common humanity and I extend that to the beloved community, but it doesn't, you don't even have to appeal to something that is grounded in, in Christianity. It is just a common humanity. This nihilism can't exist. It can't, it, it doesn't allow for countries to exist or continue to exist. You can't be continuously a nihilist and undermine institutions and people and their heroes all the time. You can't do that. You will not survive. And we're too intertwined, too intertangled to say that one group is responsible and the other one is not. We're all responsible and we have to have all hands on deck. And we all have to realize our common humanity. Dr. Lisa D. Cook, thank you so, so much for your wisdom. This was just absolutely amazing. You can check out Dr. Cook's website, lisadcook.net. You can follow her on Twitter, at Dr. Lisa D. Cook. I will list all those charities she was talking about. Go ahead and hit subscribe to the YouTube station or the podcast channel. I'm Carrie Lee Merritt. This is Meritocracy. Thank you so much.